Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown in beautiful Beijing, China, for another China Rising Radio Sinoland show. And this is a very, very special installment because today we have um, on the show uh, Mr. David Rovix, and he is a uh, singer-songwriter uh, from the United States who hails out of uh, Portland, Oregon. How are you doing this morning, David? Great, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing super. Hey, listen, I just was just curious. How did you end up uh, in Portland? I mean, you know, Seattle has Nirvana and grunge, and San Francisco has Janis Joplin and Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. Uh, what was mm. it? The, was it the microbreweries that drew you to Portland? Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of good microbreweries here. But I actually, I, I did live in, in the past, I lived in both Seattle and San Francisco for, okay. for some of the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, back before either city was gentrified, um, and I moved to Portland. Uh, uh, be, well, basically because my daughter's uh, mother moved here to go to medical school. But oh wow! I, I always wanted to. I always thought living in Portland was was a nice idea um, because all the refugees from Seattle and San Francisco were moving here. <laughs> uh, but now too many of them are moving here, and yeah, it's becoming yeah. just as pricey, almost as pricey. Yeah. yeah. Hey, listen. I want uh, uh, for for all of the, uh, and I'm I'm sure 99% of my China Rising uh, Radio Sinoland um, uh, fans out there uh, probably do not know about you, and so this is a great chance for them to to get to know you. I want to let you know I found out about you by uh, reading the um, uh, uh, anthology of the articles or blogs by the Saker. He's a mm. he's, he's a Russian writer, and his his website's called the Saker, t h e s a k e r dot i s. He's his servers in Iceland, and uh, he is um, uh, anti imperial, anti Western, you know, uh, uh, a Russian immigrant who lives in in Florida, uh, in fact, and. Uh, the 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 the, gen, the 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 genocide uh, in 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 the Ukraine starting in 2014 really launched him into celebrity and I was and he and he he quoted a couple of your songs in his um in his in his book and I thought well I want to check this guy out and so I did and I immediately fell in love with your work and and uh, have been intrigued ever since. One question I wanted to ask you about your musical career is I, I noticed um, since I. You know, I, I bought. I did buy your catalog, uh, and there's just been this like exponential growth in um, um, in in your output, <laughs> like especially in the last two years. Is is this just because you become a better in the studio and a better producer, or or has your writing increased exponentially recently? I mean, why all of a sudden this huge slug of albums starting in about 2013? Well, I have been, I've definitely been on a roll with, with writing more than ever in the past several years, but it's also a lot to do with just technology because mm -hmm. I used to just record songs and get them up in some form on the web, but now it's so easy to do online albums. So basically, if I have an album's worth of stuff, I'll, I'll just book a day in a yeah. studio and make a decent sounding solo guitar album and put it on Bandcamp. So uh, most of those albums and those songs, uh, you're talking about have never been on in any kind of physical CD form, but yeah, they, they do yeah. exist. Yeah. Well, I'll, we'll definitely talk about uh, trying to uh, get p introduce people to your uh, music at the end. 
as far as travel, I know through I've listened to all I've listened to your catalog twice now from front to back, and I know you've traveled to Europe. Um, what about Asia? Have you have you traveled over here or near Beijing? I've been uh, many times to Japan and Hong Kong and also to uh, West uh, Asia to to what what we uh, call from a Eurocentric perspective the Middle East. Uh, but I, um, I've, I've never been to uh, China other than Hong Kong. Okay, uh, all right. To go sometime. Well, we'd lo- we'd love to have you over here. Hey, well, listen. I listen. Uh, every, I, what I really want people, uh, you have a wonderful website, which I will give at the end. You have a SoundCloud account. You have a Wikipedia uh, page that somebody did a masterful job with. So in, instead of spending a lot of time. Um, um, you know, uh, talking about uh, <clears throat> uh, your your biography. Hey, well, listen. I'd like to immediately get into your uh, work. I mean, your I just love your, um, you know, the the, <clears throat> the your anti-imperial um, stance, and and I, and I noticed in your in Wikipedia that you're a member of the <clears throat> Industrial Workers of the World, and maybe we can talk about that some other time because uh, I'm looking for some kind of an outlet to express myself along similar lines. Mm-hmm. But you do have the, you do have, uh, you know, I cataloged all your songs and, you know, you do have a definite, some definite categories such as police brutality, Palestine, the, the, the Jewish diaspora. You've got some great human interest stories and some, and you, you must be a great reader of history because you've got some historical stories you know, you've got some, some, you know, humorous, sarcastic ones, and then you 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 write, you know, very eloquently and angrily about, you know, what I call America's, you know, worldwide Wehrmacht, uh, you know, the the our, yeah. you know, the, the 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 war machine across the planet, and then you've got tons of songs, of, you know, about capitalism and environmental desecration, civil disobedience, Ireland, which I love, and you know, communism, socialism, labor unions. Obama, politi- uh, and you know the American politics. You even have a couple of um, of uh, children's albums. And so what I did is, is I picked um, I think a, maybe six or seven of your songs that well, there's no way we can cover all of these different categories in today's um, interview. But I just picked a few, and I just would like to find out, you know, just what was your inspiration, and how did you find out about them, and what inspired you to write about them. And and the first one is Asada, uh, and I had to be honest with you, I had never even heard about this lady, and it uh, centers around police brutality. Tell us about uh, Asada Shakur. I first heard about Asada Shakur, I guess, as a teenager uh, when I when I first uh, discovered this, this incredible history in the United States of the Black Panther Party for Self Defense. And um, which I had never heard about all growing up, which somehow just shocked me when I first heard about this this social movement. Because I mean, growing up in the suburbs, uh, certainly I heard a lot about Martin Luther King and I heard a lot about the civil rights movement. But the the whole the existence of the Black Power movement was completely absent from my education. I had no idea that any of this stuff existed. Well, neither neither did I. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. I think it's just the way, you know, it's it's the American propaganda educational system. I mean, they decided MLK is somebody they can work with in, in, in teaching about the, uh, the past, and, and they just wrote people like Malcolm X and Asada Shakur and, and Huey Newton out of the history books, you know, mm-hmm. completely. 
But, um, but and, when I, I, and and they and and when when Martin Luther King went off script, they killed him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One one year to the day after he went off script, he was dead. Exactly. Please continue. So, I mean, I heard about uh, Asada Shakur in the context of the Black Panther Party and uh, and a long time ago, and and uh, then. Uh, basically, when, when on 2013, May 2nd, 2013, oddly enough, on the anniversary of the extrajudicial uh, assassination of Osama bin Laden, uh, the, uh, the, this FBI agent uh, named uh, Agent Ford uh, got on TV um, along with the governor of New Jersey, uh, Christie, uh, saying that uh, they had just uh, doubled the bounty on Asada Shakur's head and made her the number one most wanted terrorist on the FBI's most wanted list, and of course, for people familiar with uh, sort of the U.S. Uh, social <laughs> political scene, you know the FBI has long had a most wanted fugitives list. But at some point in the past few years, I don't know when, sometime after 9/11, they clearly changed that to most wanted terrorist list because I guess any fugitive is also a terrorist in modern parlance. Yeah, yeah. So when they doubled the bounty on her head, I, I was inspired to write a song about her, but I, I, I had known about her for many years before, before Two, that. Two million dollars. Yeah. And, and for those of you do, who don't know, she has an amazing story. She uh, escaped uh, from uh, a prison uh, in the United States I, uh, somewhere in, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s, uh, and she somehow got, found her way to Cuba where she is a uh, prisoner of uh, conscience. I'm, I'm sorry, a fugitive of conscience down there. And she's still alive. She's 68 years old, and she still lives there. And and yep. it, it would be fascinating to go inter you know, talk to her. I, I don't know if anybody ever has. but um, um, And she has a great line I, I saw recently. The only thing we have to lose are the chains that bind us, you know. Mm. So, um, well, what what is your take? I mean, you know, I I have been in the I have been in China now for my second time. This is our fifth year, and we actually lived here in seven years back in the early nineties. Mm. Um, and uh, but I mean, this police brutality from Beijing is absolutely just it's it's embarrassing and and it's. It's disgusting and it's just revolting. What I mean are, are Americans just too beaten down, or or is it just because it's the the thousand people that are being killed each year and growing are mostly poor and poor and dark skinned? I mean, wh wh where is the outrage about police brutality now? I think um, I mean it's 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 sort of I would say a complicated question, complicated answer, but basically uh, I think. Um, on one hand, uh, a lot of people are outraged. I would say the vast majority of uh, African Americans are outraged, and a, a very significant number of the rest of the population of the country are also outraged by uh, the police brutality. And I think that um, in terms of the, the thing is that in order to have a, a successful big social movement, you you need more than just outrage. You need optimism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. People need to believe that something can change. So there's a lot of outrage, but there's also a lot of cynicism. Yeah. Uh, or, but there's or feelings of hopelessness. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then there's also, on, on the other hand, there's also the massive, just you know, 
the, the history of racism in the United States, which is impossible to overstate and cannot really be adequately explained to people who did yeah. not grow up here. But uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it's comparable to Israel or South Africa or other oh, very, you know, racist societies. It's just racism is part of the soul of this country. This country yeah. was founded on uh, slavery. Slavery was the economic model and for this and, country. And, and genocide of the, of the Native Americans. Yes, yes. You kill the natives and then in, and bring in enslaved Africans <laughs> to do all the work. And that's, that is the essential, you know, aspect of the history of this country. And, and, it's, and it still plays out constantly. I mean, and, and the, there has never been reparations uh, African Americans are uh, mo most African Americans in, in the United States are, uh, you know, essentially part of a uh, his historic um, sort of um, oppressed group oh, that yeah, are still, still very much oppressed systemically in so many ways. You know, and are basically make up a, a sort of underclass in, in so many ways. So it's um, you know it's very much uh, part of the whole. Well, I, as I've said about Israel and the United States, you know, uh, countries that are founded on violence, genocide, and extermination, you know, are just inherently violent and yeah. and, and genocidal and, and 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 racist in their daily lives. So, I have I have the uh, I've heard two theories about this. One theory is is that the violence against blacks and minorities and poor people has never really maybe it went down some in the 60s during the civil rights movement but with the Jim Crow laws and then after that it, it never really went away and, it, and it's always been there and it was just, just the, the fact that we all now have um, we all now have you know uh, phones and phone cams that were exposing it and so it we're just yeah. we're, we're exposing what was always there, and then I've always he also heard the theory that, well, it really did drop, you know, after the civil rights movement, and it's just really started bu building up in the last, you know, five or ten years. Do you think which one do you think is probably more a more accurate picture of what's going on? I don't have any reason to believe in, in terms of uh, my understanding of the of the past. Uh, 150 years or so since the Civil War, which, you know, is fairly, I mean, that's my, I'm really a big fan of history, and, and right, my obviously. You know, favorite periods are the 19th, 20th, and early 21st centuries, and uh, yeah, this, uh, the country was founded on, on uh, you know, financially on, on slavery and, as well, and genocide, as you say, as well, but slavery, especially because it, because it was this ongoing component, I mean, that you know the, this ongoing part of the population, you know, and and then uh, you know in a, in a in very large very large numbers, you know, very large. Uh, yeah. And then after uh, the Civil War, uh, that it, that began a 100-year reign of uh, of the KKK, which was which was the military arm of the Democratic Party, and people yeah, yeah, need yeah. to understand that as well. The Democratic Party was. The party of 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 the white working class. It was a racist party at the core. Absolutely. Of it. You had the choices as as American voter for, from the post Civil War period through the 1960s. Your choices were between uh, the party of racism and the party of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you had no other sensible options. You just had these two very bad choices, and then. 
with the civil rights movement, I think if anything, the violence against black people increased. Yeah. You know, um, and since then, uh, since the civil rights movement largely collapsed uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, you know, I, I think uh, things got much worse actually for, for uh, African Americans. Uh, and also for much of the rest of the population. Yeah, 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 yeah. Poor, poor, poor people, poor white people, and now the middle class, and now the upper middle class. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the 1970s began the whole process of of the uh, the outsourcing of American industry and mm -hmm. and the you know the, this whole you know the, the capitalist class becoming so much wealthier and the concentration of wealth in their hands so much greater uh, through the vehicle. Of uh, basically uh, destroying the industrial base of the country and exporting it all, uh, exporting industry with su massive subsidies, you know, to to China, Mexico, China, <laughs> Korea, the whole world. I mean, chi outrageously, ch China and Chinese leadership, Chinese workers get blamed for this outsourcing, which is crazy yeah. because this was all. Of course, every country, you know, has different parts of different. Every country wants to have industry and wants to. We, you know, have, have a successful industrial base. Uh, that China is not unique in that sense. That's China is just like every other country in that sense, uh, except better organized. But you know, that this was an initiative of the, the capitalist class of the United States to increase profits, yeah, to outsource absolutely. industry to places where workers get paid less. And the initial uh, place where that was, the, the first place where lots of industry was outsourced to, as far as I know, was Mexico. You know, I yeah, mean, you saw the effects of the, you know, these free trade bills, starting with NAFTA, and then uh, continuing on Sa with. Thank also, you, Bill Clinton. Yeah, thank you, Bill Clinton. That one of the worst capitalist banksters we've ever been ruled by, who, who somehow has this completely undeserved reputation of some kind of some know, liberal progressive who likes black people. Yeah, ridiculous. Who bombed Serbia for 99 days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, um, in the interest of time, I, I you have so many wonderful historic songs. Uh, you know, I, you just you know you just mentioned that you're a reader of history, and it's pretty obvious. Um, if we can maybe just kind of combine uh, Egyptian rag and landlord together, because they're they're both about America, and they and they but you know they they both just show the the brutal psychopathic nature of of capitalism. Uh, the first yeah. one, Egyptian rag. <laughs> I, yeah. I had no idea about this. Uh, tell tell us about I, Egyptian rag. What an amazing and sickening story! It is just so crazy, and it's and it, as far as I can tell, it's just so little known about. It's re that's the other part, which is just so. I mean, the scale of this operation. So, in a nutshell, I was driving towards Moab, Utah, listening to community radio, it's and these, it's beautiful out there. Oh, so gorgeous! And these two women, who are both archaeologists, were being interviewed about something that was. Not related to, to Egypt, but they got into the subject to illustrate a point. And then I heard for the first time about this history, and I looked into it. And uh, what little information you can find is largely from a journalist in Maine. Um, but basically, um, I, and I don't know if it's, it's completely proven beyond any doubt, but the but it seems the overwhelming evidence would suggest uh, that most of the rag paper. Most of the rags in the 19th century, backing up uh, for a moment here, in the 19th century, paper was made out of rag. Like up until yeah, Len, uh, Len, Len, Len. 
linen. Yeah, you made it out of linen, rag. You didn't need new, nice cloth. You just needed any kind of old rag, right? So any kind of cloth. So that's that's how paper was made until they perfected making it out of trees, and then it became more commonly made out of you know wood. But uh, so rag was a huge industry in the in the 19th century. Yeah. So they um, so and of course they're always looking as industrialists always are looking for the cheapest sources for their uh, you know input inputs into the process right. So uh, the British were building a railway from Alexandria to Cairo in the 1850s. Right along they, right along the Nile. <laughs> yeah not, yeah maybe that's true. I, I I'm not I I can't say for sure because I'm not looking at a map but. They uh, they were they, every time they dug a hole and mostly this I guess it, I don't think there was right along the Nile actually it was more um, inland but anyway I, because part of the thing when I was reading about it the thing they were saying was that basically most of the people in Egypt lived along for thousands of years lived along the Nile River Valley but uh, but when they what, when they would bury their dead they would go yeah, out into go the out, desert you know, exactly yeah. and so what you have out in the desert where they were building this railway was was uh, how many? I think I, admit, I don't I don't remember the number, but many many millions oh, of no, mummies. No. I think you said a half a. I think you yeah. said a half a billion or something. Half a in billion. Your song, in yeah, your that's song. right. In your over song. the course, which is over the course of four thousand years of people burying. That's about dead. right. That's about right. <laughs> so you know that's and so they came across all these all these cloth and all these bodies basically that were you know. And in out in the desert, uh, relatively mummies, 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 right? Yeah. So they unwrapped. So there was a whole industry employing Egyptian women and children to unwrap the mummies and send the mummy wrappings to this huge paper company based in the state of Maine, <laughs> who, who would send ships over to pick up this you know, ship loads of rag and bring it back to Maine. I think a couple times a year. So yeah, that went on for the last half of the 19th century. And uh, and it was just basically you know it's been completely it was written out of the history book before it was ever written into them you know because yeah, well, they didn't uh, there was only just a few references of on receipts that these rags were coming from what they called the tombs of Egypt on the official documents so yeah but that's that's and then so the people so then you think of some of the cartoons that people if you grew up like watching Disney or whatever you know you think of some of the mummy imagery in there. And it's interesting to me how I think there may be some kind of in the popular sort of, I don't know, rumors or facts or imagination or whatever, but basically people on the paper room floor, on the mill room floor in, in the paper mills in Maine would throw down these rags, right? And sometimes, because they'd been wrapped around a body for thousands yeah, of yeah, years. Like an arm or a leg or a skull would fall, fall out. It, well, no, no. The rag would just spring into the shape of a body, oh. you know, because it was it was you know it, it was it was shaped in that yeah, shape. Yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah for five thousand yeah, years. throw it years. down. It was loose, and it would spring into the shape of a body. And so oh, the workers were like, "Whoa, what is this?" You know. So then the rumors got around, you know, that, of the suspicious nature of these rags. You know? Well, and also uh, to to further support the story, you know, Mark uh, Twain wrote in um, yeah. His uh, oh the book when he traveled in Europe uh, <clears throat> that the British were burning mummies and and trains uh, uh, to replace coal. Um, yes, and this is this. There's other references to that practice of uh, the British. Uh, well, what they were doing was not, the mummies uh, were made of you know basically soil 
and oil. The yeah, oil, yeah. so the oil they were preserved in, in oil. So the, there was so much oil that the British were using the oil to burn in the trains, mm -hmm. and the soil they were using to fertilize their gardens. Yeah. But well, uh, Mark Twain wrote about it, and he thought it was it. What a crazy thing! But he said, "Well, it's a crazy world, so it might be true." You know. But actually, I don't know if he actually knew, but but it it actually was. Uh, as, as far as it, it very much appears to have been true. And then I read that uh, they uh, 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 companies like Merck uh, Pharmaceuticals were, were selling you know ground up mummies as a drug and. Oh yeah, that uh, was a big thing. Yeah. And then, uh, up until 1910. Yeah. And then they were you know uh, uh, making uh, there used to be Egyptian brown dye. They were you know. Um, percolating these, you know, dead bodies, um, you know, in vats so that they could extract, you know, you know, brown color. And, you know, can you imagine what white what white people in Europe would be thinking if the Chinese yeah. were doing this in Western cemeteries? I mean, can you? Yeah, imagine? exactly. It's exactly. just I mean, put the shoe the on the other foot. It's just the racism and the dehumanization is just. That's just the psychopathic logic of capitalism, you know. It's just Absolutely. that's just the way it works. And that's then the thing that you try turning it around, you know. Try try imagining um, the WTO protests of 1999 happening in Beijing. Try imagining, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, police, you know, th tens of thousands of Chinese riot cops drowning the entire city in, in clouds of tear gas yeah, and, and just going on and clubbing and, and pepper people. spray. Yeah. Oh, pepper spray, spraying pepper sprays directly into people's eyes, and you know, I mean, this kind of—it's not that this kind of thing is unique to the United States, but when if you take a, a take a scene like that and put it in Beijing or Havana or <laughs> Moscow or other places that the U.S. leadership doesn't like. You know, it would. They would be. The media here would be talking about the end of the, you know, the regime. You exactly. Know. And then, and then we move. And then I, I again, I, you listening to listening to David's songs is like, <laughs> not only listening to great music, but learning a lot about <clears throat> about history. And then there's the landlord about the landlord, the the land wars, the land rent wars. In the yeah. 1800s, the Rensselaers. I had no idea we had feudalism in the United States. I know, and this is this is another like uh, of this is the major thing in the 20th and 19th century history that that is like has had such a massive impact on everybody in in the in the world. Uh, certainly, everybody in Europe and North America and lots of other countries for sure, absolutely. Uh, but the, the 1840s, it's another period that's that's been it was written out of the U.S. history books before it was ever written into them. It's a big thing in Europe. Uh, people in Europe, get, they learn about this stuff. If you go to school in Germany and you learn history, you'll know a lot about the 1840s because it was a major period. In Europe, it was the period where a lot of countries got democracy for the first time or got where, where peasants got rights to own land and where people got to vote for the first time and where the parliaments were set up and you know very, various democratic institutions were set up for the first time in many European countries in 1849. And that was a response to the rebellions of 1848, when every monarchy in Europe, with, with the exception of Russia and Britain, was overthrown by peasant rebellions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But the, the thing that is so unknown to, both, to either side of the Atlantic is that you had the same kind of feudal relationships here in the United States in terms of land ownership, and you, you, you largely still do here. But um, but you had and you had all these tenant farmers who were basically they were peasants 
in Europe they would have called them peasants or serfs. Here we never called them that because you can't have peasants in the United States somehow. We, we called them tenant farmers. They were people that did not own any land and they rented their land from this big rich uh, landlord who had inherited it uh, and had been given the land. His family was given it by the Dutch crown. And uh, and that's um, so so people rebelled against against the, the conditions against the uh, the landlord um, taking so much of their earnings and every year for doing nothing but owning the land and uh, and for nine years they refused to pay the rent it was a very well organized rent strike uh, you know if anybody if the cops were coming to anybody's farm people would blow on a tin horn and a thousand farmers on horseback would be there to defend that farmer from uh, the police and drive them out. For nine years, this went on, wow. and it it led it d very directly to the Homestead Act of 1862, yeah, yeah, exactly. which distributed land to millions of people. And you know, that never, you know, of course nowadays we see it the Homestead Act largely from the perspective of like, okay, this was part of the process of the theft of this whole uh, country from the native people, which is also true. But at the same time, the way the land was stolen. Was had had socialist overtones, if you can put it. Of course, if, if that makes course. any sense. You know, the 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 way that it was distributed, it was not just given to the rich. Um, you know, so so which they could have done, and that's how, that's what happened on the East Coast. They just gave the land to the rich uh, when they first settled uh, the United States, uh, what later became the United States. But the West Coast, uh, it was a, it followed a different model because of the rent strike, because they didn't want their government to be overthrown. By you know the teeming masses of impoverished tenant farmers, like had happened in Europe, and and you said and the, and the you you mentioned that the the Rensselaer family, an old Dutch family, um, they had the largest. They had eighty thousand tenants, basically eighty thousand slaves, and their fortune back then was forty one million, which in today's dollars would be worth ninety billion. Yeah, that's how, or eight, that's, that's 88 how, billion, I guess. I rounded up okay. in the song. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's just like, you know, it's yeah. just the, 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 talk about the 1% versus the 99%. I mean, it's been, it's been there, you know, since the dawn of capitalism. It's just unreal. Absolutely. Well, Are you getting a, uh, hearing a high pitch buzzing? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. But let's go on. And I and I just and I and I looked down, and the light on my <laughs> microphone was off. And while you were just talking, I replaced batteries. So, okay, we'll see what happens. <laughs> let's move on to um, a, another great uh, historical song, um, uh, Sugihara. This is about the uh, Jewish diaspora. What an amazing story. Um, about yeah. this this Japanese diplomat in uh, Lithuania, tell us about um, tell us about him. I mean, it's uh, especially since uh, the movie Schindler's List, uh, people know about Oscar Schindler. But what many people don't realize, uh, unless they're you know, way into this stuff, is that there were a whole lot of people from a whole lot of different countries that uh, that, that tried to play the same kind of role as, as Schindler, and uh, in the the, the, the Japanese. Uh, Schindler was uh, was Sugihara, <clears throat> and um, he saw it, it, he 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 basically under, understood uh, that basically what was going on. Like it, it, you know, it, I guess the complete picture wasn't there, but it was very clear uh, what Nazi Germany's intents were with with Jewish people, and he had familiarity with uh, with the whole 
like different aspects of European society he had lived there for quite a while. He understood the role that like Jews played in society. And this, this was this was in Lithuania. This was yeah, but he was also he also lived in Poland and other okay, countries. Okay. Uh, and uh, and so uh, and he had lived in China. He, he, was, he was based in Manchuria originally, and and he he criticized uh, the Japanese Empire's treatment of Chinese civilians, which was why he was sent to Lithuania. <laughs> And uh, so then, uh, then he 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 basically uh, just uh, he and his wife basically started spending 18 hours a day for a month writing visas, completely against the orders of the Japanese Empire, uh, giving out visas uh, to uh, European Jews, mostly Lithuanian and Polish Jews. And so he uh, he and his wife um, facilitated uh, the escape from Europe of uh, 6,000 Jews. Yeah, 6,000. And they mostly moved. They mostly uh, spent the war years in Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. I, I read that they originally went to Kobe, uh, Japan, and then they had to they transit were... through Kobe. Can yeah. you imagine six thousand Europeans uh, transiting through Kobe during the war and not being noticed <laughs> by the Japanese authorities? I think, I think that's amazing, and and I think it is. It is very. Uh, it's it's not evidence, but I think it points to the notion that the Japanese Empire never particularly cared about the whole Jewish question and never took seriously the whole idea that they should care about this thing. And and if anything, they they wanted more Jews in in, in places that they controlled because they thought they believed that the the doc, the idea that coming out of Germany that Jews were good at, at business. Yeah, and they yeah, thought yeah, that yeah. would be very helpful, you know. Well, they, I, I guess after, after the liberation of China in 1949, I suspect most of them either went back <laughs> to Europe or went back to Israel. Uh, uh, I know there was a thriving Jewish community before 1949 in Shanghai because <clears throat> that was a kind of the, you know, the international, you know, port after, after Hong Kong, which was very British. Mm. Shanghai was very, uh, was very cosmopolitan and had a lot of foreigners and, I don't know what happened to him. I actually have a very good friend, a researcher, a professor, and he's written a couple of books um, uh, and actually wrote a book about Shanghai, pre-war pre -war Shanghai, and I'll find out if he knows what happened to those 6,000. Um, well, a lot of them went to North America, and a lot of them went to Palestine and okay. uh, Israel at that time by then, and a lot of them went uh, to various European countries. But um, the one, the one that the, the way I first heard about it was through my friend Ben Mansky, whose grandfather Samuel Mansky uh, was uh, one of the, one of these guys. Oh, wow. yeah, Sugihara survivors they call themselves. Wow, and, uh, wow. His his route uh, was uh, basically going from China, uh, from Japan to Shanghai. To Palestine and then eventually to Wisconsin, which is, uh, yeah, where uh, where I know my friend Ben from. Hey, David, I want to ask you. You know, I I love the fact. I mean, you, you did an entire album about Palestine called uh, Philistine Habibti, which in Arabic means, you know, Palestine, my love, and 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 you also have written some be beautiful and eloquent stories about the Jewish diaspora. I just wanted to ask you because do you have any cognitive dissonance, you know, between you know the Jewish diaspora in World War II and and what is happening in Palestine? I mean, does do you, do, are you conflicted about that? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think if you're going to sum up the whole thing in two words, cognitive dissonance is exactly what it's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it is just so crazy to grow up, uh, you know, thinking and believing and learning about being Jewish and how that means, at least in the sort of the way it, many people growing up Jewish, in, it, it, certainly in many countries anyway, I think maybe universally, they grow up uh, learning about this whole idea that we're the underdogs and we're uh, people that stick up for the oppressed and Jews who are always very uh, much part of uh, supporting democratic movements. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you know, minorities and blacks. and Yeah, and, and a lot of that is true. And uh, and there's all kinds of historical reasons why, like say for example, the Communist Party in the United States has is so disproportionately Jewish. Yeah, and, Jewish. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of the Trotskyites. Of, oh yeah, I mean the left in general, and uh, you know also uh, left wing songwriters. I might add. I mean there is <laughs> you know there's a hell of a lot of left wing Jews, and uh, and so then it, all that history and also that left wing reality it just so much flies in the face of the of the policies of the country of Israel since its formation in, in 1940. It's all since before its formation, yeah. the way the Zionist movement was. And, I mean, I think what it comes down to, there's just, you know, it basically, it, I'd say basically the, the Jewish uh, diaspora uh, related to the Holocaust in very different ways. And, and uh, for many people, uh, the reaction was never again to anybody. And, and, uh, and that, th those people joined the left or rejoined the left and and for some people many people it meant never again to us and who cares about anybody else and that that has always been uh, a part of the Jewish tribal thing I mean there has always been and this is certainly not unique to, to Jews but lots of different uh, sort of ethnic groups around the world uh, tend to see themselves as better than anybody else yeah, and that is definitely true of, of Jews of many Jews and that's been part of the Jewish uh, religious dogma for, for forever, as far as I know. That's all idea of the chosen people, you know. So there is, uh, yeah, it's very, there's a hell of a lot of cognitive dissonance um, in the whole question of, of being Jewish and in the question of, uh, you know, how, how how do you reconcile the Holocaust with uh, with the Holocaust in Palestine? <laughs> yeah. With with the uh, yeah with the policies of Israel, which are not the same in terms of you know rounding everybody up and putting them in gas chambers. I mean, there's definitely a s serious distinction to be made there. But but what but you know when they call Gaza a concentration camp, yeah. I think that's really not a. I loved it when you said that. When you when you actually said I I called I always, I always called it the you know the largest uh, you know open air prison, but it's it's the same thing. Yeah, same thing, but it's more maybe more accurate to yeah, say open air prison because people associate concentration camps with death camps, and there is there were actually different forms of concentration camps. Not you know, and it is I I think it is much more it is like a concentration camp, but it is not a death camp in the sense of well, mechanized killing of the entire population, but still not allowing them to eat not, uh, enough it's food. The, it's, the it's the slow constantly death. Constantly bombing them. I mean, it's a slow death. You know, they know that they can't. That all the water is salt water. They have no capacity to create clean water. You know, what they're doing is so illegal and so immoral and so deadly. And they are. You know, it is a slow death. It is. It is. It might as well be gas chambers. The. Uh, you know, I'm very conflicted. I. Um my first book, 44 Days, um, even though it's about China, it, I, I did a lot of reflection, 
you know, back, uh, it caused me to, it was, this was, 44 days was begin, basically, you, you became much more aware of, of the truth earlier in your life than I did. It took me until I was about 55 to start catching on. So, um, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I wrote in there because I was researching, you know, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and, mm. and it, it, it <laughs> And it occurred to me, you know, how bad Israel long term, the creation of Israel long term will, will be for the Jewish people, and and because it's going to come back to haunt them. And and I wrote that the gates of Jerusalem, you know, have changed hands 44 times, and it's and it's 5,000 5, year history, and it will surely change for a 45th time. And um, and so I think it's I think it, and and for me right now, I mean, Israel. And it's genocidal, you know, war crimes and crimes against humanity. To me, it's a litmus test for the survival of the human race. I mean, I mean, if we can sit back and allow what they are doing to their neighbors uh, to, to happen, I don't, you know, to me, it's sort of like, eh, I don't think the, the human race has much of a chance to survive long term. You know, and you even have a great song. What 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 is it, David, where you... Talk about the Super Bowl and the Starlet, and and uh, and then you and then you you juxtapose these positions, uh, these 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 images of us, you know, eating and drinking and having a good time in the West with all these horrific images. I forgot the name of the song, but that's it. You know, it it's out of sight and it's out of mind, and we don't care. And and but if if that if that if that if that is allowed to go on, and and France and Great Britain and the United States, you know, can keep, uh, you know, vetoing, uh, you know, censor, you know, in the United Nations and the Security Council, you know, to protect Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, 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 for me, it, 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 it's a, it's sort of the canary in the gold mine for everything that's wrong with the United, with, with the, with the human race. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really sums up a lot, and it's. Uh... It just makes a mockery of anything that the Western countries ever say about anyone uh, and any other country's practices because as long as they are, as long as the, the West, and it's of course not just the United States, but most European countries yeah, absolutely. are supporting Israel and, and uh, you know, with, in all kinds of ways. And as long as that continues, then you know, the, the, the none of these countries, I mean, there's other reasons, but that's one very major reason why none of these countries' leadership can have any moral ground to stand on at all yeah. when they're criticizing yeah. anybody else. Absolutely. David, have you? did you ever on Al Jazeera, on the Al Jazeera website, did you ever watch the uh, documentary they did called Al Nakba? I'm not sure. I okay, well, I, I will. I will uh, for on this okay. for this show uh, on my website, I will put that link. Uh, they did a 200-minute um, documentary on Al Nakba, the basically the the creation of Israel and the genocide of the Palestinians, and and it is it's really 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 outstanding. And um, what what I. Th what what I kept looking at when I was watching this is I saw the images and film footage of the Palestinians and the Israelis, and I was I was going, you know what? These images look exactly like the images of 
the Nazis and the Jews in Europe in World War II, except that, except now the the Nazis have been replaced by the Jews and the Palestinians have, have replaced the Jews. I mean, the, the images of, you know, these gates and the, the ghettos and the, you know, the borders and the, the camps. And it's like, it's just bizarre. And it's so bizarre. And all the, the song you mentioned at one point in an email, the song, my song, uh, um, what do you call it? Oh, yeah. And, yeah and what, what, kind, is, what kind of country? What kind and of th this whole song, what do you call it? I'm just uh, basically talking about, uh, I don't name the country or what I'm talking about, but uh, in the song, it's all stuff that is both true of Nazi Germany and of contemporary yeah. Israel. Tattooing, and, tattooing numbers on their arms. That's what, that's what the Nazis did. Yeah, they didn't. Uh, th that was a brief period during the Israeli occupation of the West Bank that they actually were uh, writing numbers. Uh, I don't think they weren't actually tattooing it in, in Israel, but they were using indelible markers to write numbers on the wrists of Palestinians that they were detaining. Okay. And uh, and this is obviously like, you know, they could have picked any part of the body. I mean, there's obvious convenient parts uh, aspects to the wrist because it's easy to get at and whatever, but. Uh, this is, you know, there's so many things like that that happen in the course of the Israeli occupation that, I mean, the fact is that if you're going to occupy a country and subjugate a country's people, there, is go there are going to be a lot of things that you do that are going to be very similar to what other occupying powers do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so it's, it's going to be really basically tough if you, you know, if you don't, if you're going to be afraid of people making these parallels, well, you're going to look like, a lot like... Uh, you know, one dictatorship, one dictator looks a lot like another. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, let's let's cover one more song, um, and I really, uh, um, I, th I, th I think you have um, a background in uh, <clears throat> uh, um, in Judaism. Uh, I have a background in Irishism. Uh, my father <clears throat> uh, was a hundred percent Irish from uh, Cork, Kerry, and Killarney counties, and in fact, uh, his uh, my ancestors came over during the. Um, Great Potato Famine, uh, which my father rightfully called a genocide. Uh, yeah, my my great 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 grandfather was a Potato Famine refugee. Yeah, eighteen forty-five. My ancestry is oh, really? Irish. Oh, Irish. Irish, English, Russian, and and uh, and Hungarian. Oh wow! Anyway, you have a you have some wonderful songs about Ireland, and uh, again another history, another uh, truth about history that has just been expunged from the West books is that, you know, England brutally and murderously, you know, enslaved Ireland for 800 years. It was a, it was basically the, the test tube for their colonial, um, you know, rampage through Africa and, and Asia. Uh, they, uh, they, they colonized them for, you know, for, for, for 800 years and, and, a lot of people don't know this, but you know the Great Potato Famine was entirely legislated, entirely preventable, uh, and the liberal opposition, uh, uh, famous, you know, William Gladstone, who actually was prime minister, the liberal prime minister from time to time, you know, said that it was the, the law that they passed to, to continue exporting food while these people were starving you know was, would be a law that would live in infamy and and yeah. um, so anyway I just love the fact that you have this great song up up the provost by 
about Commandante Francis Hughes. And again, I had never heard. I had heard about Bobby Sands, but I'd never heard about uh, Francis Hughes. Uh, how'd you find out about him? Well, um, from um, well, basically, I guess the, the first time I went to uh, to Belfast was um, a group called um, Friends of Guantanamo. I think they were called. That organized, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, the, I mean, Friends of the Prisoners. There, not not uh, not of the people yeah, running. Yeah, yeah. You know? And uh, they were, uh, you know, they were all um, almost all the people I was hanging out with on that first trip were ex. Uh, uh, prisoners from the from the uh, British uh, prisons who were oh my members gosh. of the IRA. Really? And so I I got to be uh, around for the meeting of for for when Mozambique uh, made his first trip to Ireland and met uh, ex prisoners from the IRA uh, for, uh, for the first time, and it was fascinating and, and powerful and God, beautiful thing yes. to be around. It's so interesting too because Mozam, who is a wonderful man. Uh, he grew up in Birmingham, and uh, and he, um, you know, he has an English accent, and he had an English ed education, and he had a very English view of Ireland, you know. So it was so interesting to be hanging out with a guy who's who had just gotten out of several years in Guantanamo, uh, and but was, you know, it's so it's essentially an Englishman. And I, I said, uh, you know, guy, says, you sound so English when you're talking about Ireland. And he said, well, I am English, you know, which is obviously <laughs> true, you know. But uh, but it was it was. And what, but what a different uh, bunch of experiences um, he's yeah. had in, in his life, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, they referred to each other as the hooded men, and, and there was just an immediate affinity between uh, the, the Irish guys and, and Mozam. Wow. And, uh, that so was, I met what a lot experience. of them. Yeah, oh, and uh, yeah. So I kept in touch with a lot of folks in Belfast after that, and, and a lot of them were um, in prison for long periods of time, and wow. knew Francis and other folks, and and they turned me onto a book uh, which I read, which uh, basically I read the book and wrote the song. Uh, the book was written by an English journalist. It's called Ten Men Dead, and it was about the 1981 hunger strike. Yeah, the hunger strike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, Bobby Sands was the most. Uh, well-known hunger striker, the first to die, and the one that the that the uh, Sinn Fein decided to run for uh, parliament, and he, and as people may know, he won the race for parliament. <laughs> thus, you know, while in prison, thus, you know, really making a mockery of the whole idea that the IRA yeah. did not have popular support. You know, if if they didn't have popular support, he wouldn't have won the race for parliament. You know? I mean. <laughs> While in prison, but um, yeah, but, but Francis Hughes was the second uh, hunger striker to die, and uh, was really uh, well well known, uh, b basically for, for his for his military prowess, and yeah, yeah. really not well known for being an, a, for for being a man of words. He was not a man of words. You know, he was he he said very little. And uh, his the main three words he was most known for saying was up the provost. Up the provost, yeah. And he said that those three words in in the most uh, you know impossible circumstances imaginable. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, you know, with a shattered leg, you know, after being nearly killed in a shootout with the British army, as British soldiers are carrying him. You know, to to onto a stretcher in a, in a not eventful <laughs> way, and then you know, to make matters worse, he says, "Up the provost," you know? <laughs> which is sort of like, "Yeah, was, fuck you." Yeah, that, that's a man with character, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's amazing. 
Well, yeah. Dave, David, on that note, uh, this. Oh, I did want to ask you about one other one, and it may be a personal one you don't want to answer. But Judy, I was exercising. I, I walk up and down before we leave. I walk up and down stairs as part of my exercise routine. And when the first time I heard you, I was like, listen to this song. I was like, and all of a sudden I'm like, and it's like St. Patrick's Day on Tiananmen Square. And I about fell down the stairs. And I was like, mm. what the heck is this? What, yeah. But you haven't been here. No, um, it was uh, so that song was um, basically a friend of mine from Chicago uh, uh, was saying uh, that his uh, was was talking about um, how he met his his wife uh, Judy who was uh, in love with for a very long time and she's Chinese and uh, and he's he's an Irish Chicago guy so he was telling me the story about how they met and um, and how you know how much she meant she meant to him and. And and she was telling me uh, he was telling me the story about how when they went to China to visit her home and her relatives and stuff, uh, it was on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, and so, and so being an Irish guy in, in in China, so on St. Patrick's Day they both put on uh, green green hats, hats and went and, out the other square. <laughs> and so then everybody you know kept on all all kinds of people kept on coming up to them and asking them what's up with the green hats you know and so then they would say it's St. Patrick's Day yeah. Oh, I whatever. Think, you know. Some people were suspicious that they might be like organizing a protest or something. But, you know, it wasn't. That's funny. Oh, that's great. Well, you anyway, know, I, I don't live. I mean, I can I can hop in a taxi and be down at Tiananmen Square in about thirty minutes. So I, 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 that, but that's a great song, and it's a beautiful, really beautiful song. Some of your some of your human interest uh, songs are just really really beautiful. Thank well, anyway. Listen, David, this has been an, a wonderful, wonderful interview. I, I have never had so many technical difficulties in, you, in all my life. I hope my battery uh, lasted until I changed it while you were talking. Um, David, uh, it's real easy. His name is David, D-A-V-I-D-R-O-V-I-C-S dot com. That's a great place to get started to get to know him. Uh, he has a SoundCloud account. I actually got his catalog. I support independent writers and independent musicians. Um, I paid 60 bucks for your entire catalog, and I think it was like it comes out like five dollars an album. But you can listen. But you can listen to David's music for free on SoundCloud. Again, um, and hopefully you'll be tempted to because he does have a wife and two kids and. And uh, he's got he's got to feed the family, and and uh, so hopefully maybe you'll buy an album or two. Uh, his SoundCloud account is just David Rovix. Um, again, I will. He also has a. I don't know who did your Wikipedia page, but I I'm jealous. Really, yeah, really I don't know. Curious. I mean, they, there's been a lot of different people editing it. If you check it <laughs> over the years, it's changed. So. But yes, yeah, very, very good. Somebody's done an incredibly good job on your Wikipedia page. So I will post all of these links on this um, for this interview on China Rising. And David, it's been really great to have you on the show. And yeah, uh, been thank, a thank you so much. And thank I'd you. like to, I'll email you about the international, um, I'm sorry, the industrial workers of the world. Uh, I just recently, just, um, I have two passports, French and and uh, American, and I um, uh, just very, very recently joined the, the, the Communist Party of China, uh, not China, mm. I wish, the, mm. com the Communist Party of France, just, you know, just as a way yeah. to, 
express my outrage at 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 what's going on in the world and yeah oh man and they're they're great and they're doing a lot of great stuff these days too man and France so is, and wow. so and so anyway I but I you know and I and I but I haven't started paying dues yet because I need to find out their position on China because amazingly mm. a lot of these. Um, socialist and communist parties around the world are actually against China, and I obviously I cannot cannot mm. do that morally because I think China is doing a great job. Mm. But anyway, so good to have you on. Um, uh, again, I encourage everybody to listen to David's uh, music and then hopefully buy some of his music uh, to support his uh, musical career. This is Jeff J. Brown uh, in beautiful Beijing. Uh, my website is www.chinarising.puntopress.com, and that's P-U-N-T-O-P-R-E-S-S.com. And uh, I encourage everybody to um, take a look at that. I do a lot of writing and interviewing about China and um, uh, looking at the world from a fresh perspective. Thanks a lot, David, and I'll let you know as soon as this is up and, and running so you can promote it. Wonderful. Take care, David. Thanks so much, Jeff. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.